glad you're here this morning. Hey, did you hear that yesterday was April Fool's Day? And um, I heard that uh, I heard that fake news went up zero point zero 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 three point four percent. Actually, I think it was point three four percent. So, anyway, that was meant to be a joke. There's a lot of point is there's a lot of fake news out there. It didn't go up much on April Fool's Day. If you could with me imagine a jewel, a sparkling jewel that's intricately woven into a beautiful, colorful tapestry made of a very expensive fabric. And the colors of that fabric interact with the jewel, enhancing its splendor. And what would happen if you tried to uh, separate the jewel from the fabric, uh, both would be ruined. Or here's a, another silly analogy, if you'll bear with me. Imagine you're a young single man living in the Wild West in the 19th century. You've been drawn there in the search for gold. Surrounded by the Rocky Mountains, there is not an eligible single woman for miles. One day you receive a flyer from a friend that single women from a place without men will come by boat to a port in San Francisco looking for suitable matches. So you saddle up your horse and ride to San Francisco in search for a bride. Once the match has been made, she can ride on the back of your horse back home. You get there and the match is made. She's perfect. She's Beautiful. She's all you ever hoped for. But on the day you come to pick her up, she's surrounded by strange people and lots of baggage. Who are these people, you say? Well, this is my family. And she introduces her uncle and aunt and her mom and dad. They are a part of me, she says. They are part of my past. When when we're married, we'll be together. um, But they'll still be a part of our lives. And what is all this baggage, you ask? Well, these are important things from my past and and in our present and for our future. I want you to know who I am, she says. And these things are a part of who I am. They represent me. To understand me is to see and to appreciate them. Well, you are beside yourself because you only wanted her. Plus, you only have a horse. And U-Haul and moving trucks have not yet been invented. How are you going to move her and her baggage back to Colorado, back home? Well, these two pictures give you roughly an idea of what I want to talk about today. In a uniquely American version of the Christian faith, there is a divide between Jesus' people And Bible people. The Jesus people love Jesus. But they want to tear the jewel from the fabric. They want him without all the baggage. The baggage, at least in their view, includes things like the Old Testament. A book containing a mean and judgmental God. A book filled with ancient laws and stories of fish swallowing people and crude practices. Simply give me 
the Jesus who feeds the poor, they suggest. But let's take a God, let's, get, let's not take a God shrouded with mystery and fierce in his judgment. Now, other parts of the baggage might include outdated sexual ethics. Like not having sex before marriage. Like when that was instituted back then, people got married like at 14. And that's so different than today. Today we've had the emergence of adolescence and people marry later and we live in a sex-saturated society. So surely we can't apply the same kind of ethic today, can we? Surely a compassionate Jesus would understand our plight and ease up on his demands for sexual purity before marriage. Christians say often, often they say things like, we are freed from the law. You may have heard me say that, or another Christian teacher or read it in a book. But what does that really mean? What does that mean? What parts of the law are we free from? Jesus' people accuse Bible people of legalism or of worshiping a book. They cite Jesus' clear denouncement of legalism, and they then advance a freedom from various ethical or doctrinal boundaries. They advance a faith that is far more progressive, far more acceptable in our times. This divide is seen in blogs and books and Facebook postings. And it's created a great deal of confusion for Christians. So what are we to do with this? What are we to do with this confusion? Well, ironically, the next few verses in the Sermon on the Mount speak directly to this. And I call this message the law versus the gospel. You'll see it there in your bulletin. It should really be the law and the gospel as we are exploring their relationship. And we're going to work through four verses in chapter 5. Each verse will be headed with a brief description. Verse 17 will be the problem of Jesus. Verse 18 will be Jesus' defense. Verse 19 will be the problem with the Pharisees. And verse 20 will be our problem and our opportunity. Now, looking at the whole, before we read this passage and pray, Looking at the whole context, remember, Jesus is addressing, in the Sermon on the Mount, he's addressing righteousness. Having described the heart condition of disciples in previous verses, he proceeds next to describe their attitudes, their motives, their behaviors, and their actions. What does a follower of Jesus look like? And in these few verses, he sets up then the rest of the chapter. Now, before I read the scripture, let me just give two brief definitions so we know what they are when we see them. When Jesus says law and prophets in verse 17, and then in verse 18, he will simply use the word law. He is referring to the Old Testament. Those were the scriptures that Jesus had access to in the scriptures that Jesus Read the Jewish scriptures. And then secondly is the word Pharisees. 
Now, the Pharisees were a tightly ordered community of religious leaders. And they were the charged, they were charged with the responsibility of overseeing, interpreting, teaching, and enforcing the law. To the average guy in the street, they were the standard bearers. They were the paragon of what righteousness uh, is and looks like. Okay, so with that clarification, let's stand and, uh, and listen here to the word of God this morning. Beginning in verse 17. Here's what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. Pray with me. Father, this morning, thank you for the power and the presence of Christ that is in his words. And we pray this morning that each of us Father, could encounter you and would have hearts open and ready to receive that which you want to say to us this morning. Uh, Open up our eyes to see a little more clearly, Jesus, who you are. And for your glory, in your name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay. Let's look at that first point in, your, in my outline this morning. It is the problem with Jesus. The problem with Jesus. Jesus begins by saying, Don't think I have come to abolish the Old Testament. Now, why does he have to say this? Why did others think Jesus was divorcing himself or diminishing the Old Testament, which for uh, the Jews was their sacred scripture? This would be a tremendous obstacle in his ministry. Well, two illustrations, I think, will help us understand this. And I'm going to go back, or, uh, go back to the Gospel of Mark. And beginning in chapter 2, verse 23, it's page 838 in the Pew Bible. And as you're turning there, let me set this up for you. Part of the Ten Commandments, which was the center point of Jewish law, their law, part of the Ten Commandments was resting on the Sabbath, resting on a Sunday. And the Sabbath was very important to the Jews and the Pharisees, or the Jews, and the Pharisees sought to interpret it correctly and to ensure compliance. But over many years, the interpretations added up, just layered on top of each other. And the interpretations eventually eclipsed the simple command itself. The interpretations were given equal or even greater authority 
than the command. And so the Sabbath became wearisome and a burden for the average person to, to, to do. And Jesus comes along and he shares two stories and he will challenge their interpret he will challenge their interpretations and he will present his own interpretation of the Sabbath. Now, Mark chapter 2, verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus, as he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar the high priest, and he ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Now, chapter 3, get rid of that chapter break. We're in the same train of thought here. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their hearts, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy Jesus. Jesus was challenging their interpretations and presenting his own. This is why the Pharisees thought Jesus did not respect their law. Now think about it from their vantage point for a moment. The vantage point of these Pharisees. You spent your whole life studying, memorizing, enforcing the law. Since the nation returned from exile for several hundred years, this tradition has slowly evolved, and in your mind, it's kept the Jewish nation on track. From your point of view, you have a deep respect for the law. You and your colleagues have been educated in certain schools, the highest schools. You've studied under the highest rabbis. And here comes this Jesus from, like some, you know, like rural Ohio somewhere. He didn't study in the customary schools. He didn't follow the customary channels. He didn't study under the great teachers. And he doesn't quote the great rabbis of the past. On top of that, he denounces your teaching. He talks about God's love and grace. He even claims intimacy with God by addressing him as father something you would never have the audacity to do. He mixes with sinners, apparently naive to their terrible misdeeds and corroding influence. Obviously, he does not appreciate our great law. This is the problem with Jesus. The problem others had with him. But Jesus had been misunderstood. And on this point, Jesus 
sees the need to clarify and to defend himself. So that's our second point, is Jesus' defense. His defense. I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, a couple of things. First, Jesus says, all in God's word will be accomplished. God's word will accomplish exactly what it sets out to do. The next age, the next world will not give birth until all is completed. Now, an iota is the smallest little stroke there in verse 18. An iota is the smallest stroke, little stroke in the Hebrew language of a Hebrew word. And like the little stroke that would distinguish an N, okay, an N from an H, just that little stroke, that's the size of this. An iota comes from the Hebrew word yod, not yoda, but yod. There are around 66,000 of these strokes in the Old Testament. Not one of them will be missed. Not one. In this remarkable statement, Jesus upholds the Old Testament scriptures and underscores their origin. They are from God. They are powerful. They are unstoppable. And they are without error. This last Tuesday night, in our free clinic, Mike was telling me that a couple was there from Syria. They were to get help medically. And there were some Bibles in the waiting room, and with, along with our friends that are out there. And this woman picked up the Bible. And um, our friend said, hey, let me show you one of the most famous verses from the Bible. And they were, she was reading John 3.16, John 3.17. And she just had this Bible in her hand, and she looks up and she says, you know, I've never read this before. These are beautiful words. These are powerful words. These words seem to come from God. This is the power of the scripture. I love that response. This is the sort of, again, like a virgin response to just the simple, powerful beauty of Jesus' words. Now, about this defense that Jesus gives, I like what John Stott says. And he picks up on a critical distinction He says this, Jesus disagreed with the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. He never disagreed with their acceptance of its authority. So what does it mean then that he will fulfill? What does it mean? This verb translated means literally to fill. Not a repeal, but a drawing out and a filling up. And Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. This is really important for us to understand. Very important. Very relevant today. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament in four ways. Here's number one. First, Jesus explains the Father to us in a deeper and fuller way. The Old Testament revealed God partially. Jesus reveals Him more fully. Secondly, Much of the Old Testament is predictive prophecy, looking forward to the coming Messiah. Jesus fulfilled so much prophecy in his coming. Thirdly, Jesus kept 
the law himself. He fulfilled the ethical demands of the old covenant. And fourthly, Jesus fulfilled or completed the ceremonial law, the temple sacrifices, the priesthood. That's why as Christians, after Jesus is coming, why we don't still practice sacrifices. We're not slicing up animals anymore to sacrifice for our sins. You come here on a Sunday morning, you might smell bread, but you hopefully won't smell a cooking animal. We don't have priests approaching God for us. We don't worship only in one place. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice who cleanses us from the inside and gives us access to God at any place and at any moment we need him. Jesus fulfilled these temple rituals, the ceremonial laws, so we no longer practice them. And though Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, he does not disparage it nor dispense with it. Today, there's just tremendous confusion about the Old Testament. Audacious charges are made against it, often very flippantly. And indeed, if we read the Old Testament with a surface level and not trying to understand its context or its meaning, if we read it without some understanding of the ancient world, if we impose on it a wooden conformity from a 21st century worldview, it is going to be misunderstood. Many charges against the Old Testament are spoken in ignorance of its subtleties. Now, according to the Old Testament, this is where it's really relevant for today. According to the Old Testament, according to Jesus, I'm sorry. According to Jesus, the Old Testament remains a law or remains relevant in our lives, except in the areas where Jesus or the New Testament writers teach us that these laws are no longer applicable for our age. There were Old Testament commands that applied directly to their age and their culture. Some of these commands might seem silly or irrelevant to us. But they were there because of cultural dynamics meaningful to them. Some of the commands helped them maintain a distinction from their surrounding neighbors. So they could be a witness to them. So they would not begin sacrificing their children like their neighbors did. Some commands reminded them of the importance of spiritual and relational purity. Others pointed to the coming Messiah. Now, we won't look here, but if you, uh, when you get a chance, look at Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 23. And there we see how Jesus lifted the dietary laws from being applicable today. Those dietary laws were fulfilled by Jesus. That's why we don't practice them today. Now, why is this important? Why is this important? Well, because critics of the Bible, critics of the Old Testament, suggest that Christians who have a big, juicy pork sandwich at City Barbecue on Friday night, or any night of the week, actually, 
They are living inconsistently if on the same hand they equally cite the Old Testament in condemning certain sexual practices. They suggest, critics suggest, you cannot have it both ways. If you say that the food laws no longer exist, then how can you cite the Old Testament as a justification for certain sexual ethics? But Christians are not cherry-picking. Jesus made clear that dietary laws, for example, were temporary. They were completed when Christ came. But in areas like sexual ethics or justice or serving the poor or loving your neighbor or loving God first, all of these old Testament commands, they are picked up and they are restated and they are reinforced in the New Testament. And so they are valid for today. They are, they are acceptable, relevant. They are on our lives for today. Some scholars call these the moral laws of the Old Testament. And they are moral laws of the Old Testament because they reflect who God is. They reflect His character. And so they are very, very important and very critical for us. So let's tie up this second point then, if we could. This was Jesus' defense to the charge on why he did not respect the law. or The charge that he didn't respect the law, this was his defense. Jesus said, I have, I have come to not repeal or abolish, but to fulfill the Old Testament. And I did it by giving a more fuller revelation of God, by fulfilling prophecy about the Messiah, by fulfilling its ethics and demands, and by fulfilling what the ceremonies foreshadowed. This is his defense. Now, look at the next verse. It's an amazing verse. Amazing verse. Here is the problem with the Pharisees. Whoever relaxes one of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. This is very insightful. But you might think, now, how? wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. minute. How could this be? Didn't the Pharisees, like, keep everything? This appears to contradict other statements made by Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, hey, they're so fastidious, these Pharisees. They tithe on the smallest items. While the Old Testament commanded people to fast once a year, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Here's what we find. What we find in the Pharisees is that even though they were believed to hold the law in great reverence, in reality, they used the law in a self-serving way. If their interpretation of the law gave them control over others, they added to it. If their external obedience to the law won them applause and seats of honor, they excelled in it. If their show of obedience gave them a wave of a feeling of superiority and spiritual pride, they relished in it. And because they used the law in a self-serving way, they found ways to relax it 
when it did not suit them. Or they extended permissions of the law to make it more manageable. Over time, their rationalizations were codified into their traditions and passed on from one tradition to the next. You see, their subtle manipulations flowed from a heart that had divorced love for God with his law, with the Bible. In the Psalms, David says, Oh, how I love thy law. How I love it. This is an attitude that recognizes God's commands are for our good. They bring freedom. They help us live according to our design, according to our nature. It isn't free for a fish to leave the deep blue sea of the ocean because they want to live on the land. Can you imagine the conversation between daddy fish and kid fish? Kid fish says, I want my freedom. I want to walk like humans do in the land. I'm tired of all this oppression from swimming in the deep blue sea. You see, freedom is not doing whatever we want. Freedom is living according to our nature, our design. That's why David could write, I love your law. I love it. But for the Pharisees, the essence of the law was not loving God. Rather, it was motivated by self-glorification. Through the appearance of a disciplined and holy life. Over time, they began to manage or relax God's laws to suit their desires. I mentioned before that this fifth chapter outlines righteousness. What a follower of Jesus looks like. And then there will be five or six examples. This will make up what we teach on the next few weeks. But the third is really a helpful illustration here. The third example. It illustrates exactly what we're talking about. And it's on the topic of divorce. Which was never commanded. But in Moses' day had been permitted under certain circumstances and certain conditions. The rules of permission by the time of Jesus' day had taken on a life of its own. Even the smallest infractions were a just cause for divorce. The original command from Genesis for one man to one woman in marriage for life had all but faded from their collective memories. And the people were thus led into the same devastating view of the Bible. And so, this is the third point. And there's a warning here, isn't there? There's a warning that those that relax the commands of God and teach them to others will be least in the kingdom of heaven. Its context is plain. Jesus is referring to the Pharisees. An assessment that was both a shock to them and the people who assumed they were the model of what it was to be righteous. This is the problem of the Pharisees. This is their problem. Now there's also a little prize here that we should mention. If we practice and teach the commands of God, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice though, it's not enough to practice. It's not enough to practice. We must also teach those that are in our sphere of influence. It takes us to our very last point, verse 20. 
working again through these four verses here sequentially. Point four is our problem and our opportunity. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus gave a statement that must have deeply disturbed the disciples, still under the influence of the teaching of the Pharisees. Based on everything I have said about how they were revered, the Pharisees, how it was assumed that you could never attain their status, this must have made finding heaven for the listeners like an impossible dream. In, in our minds, it would be like saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of Mother Teresa's, unless your righteousness surpasses that of Billy Graham's, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You're thinking, well, if that's the case, it is impossible for me. It's impossible. And is this a work ethic? What about grace? Isn't it enough just to believe? Well, there are two ways to interpret this verse. One is that Jesus is not talking about degrees of righteousness, but a different kind of righteousness. Don't just make better vanilla ice cream. Make a totally different flavor of ice cream, like chocolate. The Pharisees were bent on self-improvement to secure their salvation. But we know that we need a salvation based solely on the person and work of Jesus. So this is the first kind. It's not degrees, but it's a difference in kind. The other interpretation is simply that your righteousness needs to concretely exceed the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is it? I think the answer is both are true. We need a righteousness not based on external compliance to the law because we all break it and we can't keep it on our own. It's impossible. But if our righteousness does not exceed the Pharisees, there's no true righteousness in us at all. The Pharisees' relationship to the law was external, done for others. Therefore, it left them, as Jesus said, like whitewashed tombs, sparkly on the outside, but dead on the inside. Our relationship as Christians, our relationship to the law, to the Bible, is on the inside. And it is not separated from love. It is done for God in love to please Him. And when done with that motivation, it creates a vibrant spiritual life on the inside. Jesus has already painted the picture of what that righteousness looks like. It's merciful. It's gentle. It's pure in heart. It's poor in spirit. It hungers and thirsts for righteousness. The Pharisees' relationship to the law led to frustration, and in some respects, it had to be temporary. They obeyed not from love, but from deal-making. They obeyed so God would bless them. They obeyed so God would make their life work. So when life did not work, when life disappointed them, their obedience became a mere formality, covering a seething and resentful heart. The righteousness of a true disciple is a long, it's a long obedience. 
It endures when life doesn't work. It endures when life disappoints. It endures when God feels distant. You see, our problem is our spiritual poverty that makes us spiritually bankrupt. But the admission of that need opens the door for our opportunity, our problem and our opportunity. When we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, that's our problem, it opens up the door for our opportunity. I want to ask Nick, you guys, Nick, you can come on up. We're going to sing and take communion here in a moment, but let me just, let me just go back. Let me cycle back to the very beginning because I, I left a little bit of those questions unanswered. And I want to answer those questions. Does what I've said this morning clear up the confusion that I mentioned in the beginning? Well, I'm sure it doesn't clear up all of it. I'm sure we still have some questions about this relationship between the law and the gospel. But the truth that Jesus states here is very clear. When we take him, that perfect, beautiful bride, or that beautiful jewel, we take him, we also take the Bible. We take him, we take the Bible. There is no dichotomy between Jesus people and Bible people. Jesus people are Bible people, and Bible people are Jesus people. His presence and His life are in those words. And there should be no distinction. According to Jesus, to embrace Him is to embrace His word, neither relaxing His commands nor seeking to manage them, but rather coming to love them as our life. But aren't we... But Chris, I've heard you say that we are free from the law. What does that mean? Think about it here in my closing comments. It's very simple, plain truth. We've all experienced this. There are two ways to fulfill a law, right? Two ways to fulfill a law. One, you can keep it. Or two, you can pay the price for breaking it. Here's the amazing thing about Jesus. He did both. (laughs) He did both. He fulfilled it, not once, but two times. First, he kept it in his life on earth. He kept the law, all of it. And then secondly, he paid the price as if he had not kept it. He paid the price for us. Because we broke the law and found it impossible and broke it over and over and over again. We can't keep it. And we will never totally keep it. And we'll see that, by the way, as we go through the next parts of these next chapters. We'll see how this law is impossible to keep without Christ in us. So when the Bible says we are free from the law, what does that mean? It means we are free from having to justify ourselves through keeping a law that is impossible to keep on our own. We are free to cease from our tired work of trying to prove that we are something that we are not. We can come to Jesus this morning without one plea, as the old hymn said. Without one plea. Without one notion of self-defense, without one rationalization, without one piece of blame shifting. We can come to Jesus 
Because he calls us to come to him. And because he says his blood was enough. His life, through which we receive his righteousness, and his death, through which we receive his forgiveness, was enough for us to become sons and daughters of God. Having been made right by his grace, we don't abuse the law. We don't relax it when it's applicable to us in our day and age. But rather we grow inside with a love for God's law. And God writes his law in our hearts through his Holy Spirit. Giving us power to make progress. Power to begin to do it. And through his spirit and through his life in us, we discover a long, a long, and an internal growing obedience to be our source of freedom and our source of joy. This is how the law and the gospel complement and work together in our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the incredible relevance and timeliness of your words. How powerful, how beautiful. As that woman said, Lord, who looked at your words having never seen them before. They are beautiful. They have the ring of the divine. As if the words that they are the words of God himself. Father, this morning, this morning, continue to lead us as we respond now to what you've spoken to us. In the bread and the juice, in our songs and our prayers, in our offering, Father, continue to lead us through Christ's name.